0: You are listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these uninspired inspired talks given by Michael McAllister, followed up by question and answer exchanges with groups of his
1: students. So why are we here? What is it that puts us into a situation where we sit, still for several minutes at a time and try to uncover stillness, why is it that any of us would try to approach spirit when spirit is the only thing that is never not there? In this way, a meditation practice, spiritual practice, but especially meditation practice, is designed to fail. It is designed to fail. We have this mistaken idea that if I can search for spirit, if I can just try to uncover it, if I can get closer to spirit, then I'll be enlightened or then I will have peace in my life, or then I will be balanced, or then, then I will be more compassionate to other people. I will have become much more wise in the way that I deal with the world. And this is absolute folly. Because that search, that seeking is predicated on the idea that somehow spirit is separate from everything that you do or some of the things that you do. And it's not. Just like the present moment is never not here. Just like the reflection is part of the mirror. Just like waves are part of the ocean. And ocean is part of the waves. The mirror is part of the reflection. We cannot separate from spirit. We have never been separate from it. So what we try to do is get into some type of meditation group, uh, establish some type of uh, practice with some teacher. Uh, Regardless of tradition, we just try to get into this space where suddenly we can have this divine blast of insight that comes down from the heavens or whatever and just knocks us off our feet. And then, okay, everything's all right. But for us to assume that it's a state like that, if it's born in time, if we reach it, it is then born in time. If it's born in time, it, by that very qualification, must die in time. It is temporary. And Spirit is not temporary. So our felt sense of spirit may be temporary, but spirit itself is not temporary. Spirit itself is what has always been there. It is what has always enlivened us at the molecular level, and it enlivens all things at the molecular level. So we kind of go, I love this quote by Krishnamurti that I, I, I just throw out all the time, but I'll do it some more here. Meditation is not a means to an end, but a means and an end. If we chew on this for a little bit, Meditation is not a means to an end. In other words, meditation doesn't get us closer to spirit. Meditation is a means and an end. Meditation is spirit unfolding in this full expression of who and what we are on this cushion or on this chair or on these feet. It can't be attained. Spirit cannot be attained. You cannot reach your hands. They're already there. Your hands are already there. Spirit is already there. In this very awareness, in this everyday, ordinary mind, as we say in Zen, it's all there complete and full. So, make sure that practice isn't about manufacturing conditions into which there can be an arising of spirit or your mind's sense of what spirit might be like. make sure that we recognize that we cannot get closer to spirit that there is nothing other than spirit there is nothing other than holy and it shines equally from and onto all beings no one has more of it than another the ego loves to think this the ego projects all type of holiness on certain figures in our world, not only today, but historically. Just like the mind projects all type of stuff in relationship to evil or non-enlightened behavior, unconscious behavior on all sorts of people. Sure, there are all sorts of people that are unconscious in this world. However, they're reflecting ourselves. Ramana Maharshi commented this way. He said, the world is not real. Brahman alone is real. The world is Brahman. Or if we were assuming, uh, I'm assuming that we know that Brahman really is a a way of saying, in the uh, Vedanta tradition at least, God, the absolute, the all. So how, how is this? The world is not real. OK, yeah. Um, all these things that I have in here are mind created. In other words, they would have no intrinsic meaning if we, if we deconstruct them. Okay, If we take them apart, they're all the spin of the subatomic, just like me. Everything is that. Okay. We set up an entire array of mind-created realities based on our past and our fantasies of things that haven't happened yet, or our future, we could call that. Past and future, that's where mind goes. That is the home of ego. Anything that is born in time, ego can grab onto. So the world we kind of manufacture based on our past experiences and we behave in ways that want to create future realities. And if we're not careful, we can get in the way of all of this happening by clinging. And the clinging is the natural tendency for mind. That's what mind does. That's what ego does. It is not only the manifestation of contraction, it is also what wants to contract things. It wants to break them down, wants to grasp onto them. But the more we do this, and the sitting practice exposes this silliness, it's like trying to grasp fog. Ah, you just can't quite do it. Especially when you get up close, you can't really find the fog. So, if we recognize then that the world of form is not real, as Ramana is pointing out here, that the only thing that is real is this all encompassing embrace, this divine support of God or of Spirit, that that's all there is, that this very awareness that you have right now of my voice of what I look like, what these people in the room look like. This very awareness is real. And everything occurs within that awareness. Nothing is outside of it. And if there's nothing that's outside of it, there are no contours to it. It's just the all That is what is at each of our essence. Collectively and individually, that is us. Our essence is that spirit. Everybody's is. Everything is. Its essence is that spirit. This whole cosmos is that void showing up. That's real. So then we get to the last part of Ramana's point, which is the world is Brahman, or the world is spirit. First noble truth, life is suffering. It's all coalescing as one, and as many all at once. And our stillness practice nurtures this realization in us. It kind of pulls out a felt sense that, wow, something's going on, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Yes, leave your finger off of it. Don't try to identify with it. Don't try to figure it out, but that's our tendency, especially as we enter into practice. So practice unfolds in three stages. And that first stage <coughs> is actually that very thing. To put our finger on it, let's try to get it. Let's try to understand it. I'm going to buy some more beads. I'm going to sew a rakasu. I'm going to wear these cool robes. I'm, I'm going to get up really early. And I'm going instead of having a colorful zafu, I think I'm going to have just black. And I have more books to read, more books to buy. This will get me closer. So I will gain an understanding of all this. Well, this is actually a really healthy step. Okay, because without it, without ego getting involved in it, it doesn't happen. So we go through this stage, this initial stage of recognition, where ego begins to recognize itself through spiritual practice. It begins to recognize how to sit still. It begins to recognize what type of teacher will work and what type won't work so well, what kind of group to be a part of, what kind of tradition to work with. It wants certainty. There's a certain spiritual materialism about this whole deal. Wow, I had the most amazing experience. Let's talk about it. If we can talk about it, then we can put, like, handles on it. We can, you know, take that apart and see how cool uh, my experience is or yours is and how close we are, actually, to enlightenment. But, in fact, those experiences only arise as a way of luring us deeper into a place beyond mind a place beyond time. We get teased. We're allowed to be our typical egoic self in this first stage. And in this first stage, as it kind of deepens, there starts to be a loosening of defenses. When ego starts to become very, very familiar with itself, it starts to hold on more tightly to its cloak or in many cases its idea of what the Buddha's robe should look like. It is a limited view that starts thinking that it is eternal, that it is infinite in its recognition. And when it starts to see that this isn't actually the way it works and it's going to actually have to give up itself and its position of control, we get to stage two. I think it was St. Thomas called it the dark night of the soul. Stage two, instead of the recognition in stage one, stage two is about resistance. We suddenly are in this space where it's like, oh, this is, this is cold and dry. This is not fun. I'm not having any of those cool experiences anymore. As a matter of fact, I feel totally naked and exposed. I have no more authority because this whole thing called I is getting a little confusing. I'm not so sure that it exists anymore. I'm not so sure I exist in the ways I thought I always have. I, 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 Poof. Wait a minute. That I was a mask. What's underneath the mask is not used to being exposed. It's raw. And there begins to be this incredible fear of loss, specifically loss of all relationship. That's where resistance comes in. There's this fear that oftentimes turns to anger, and that anger then starts to sound like the crossing of swords in our heart and mind. And it can be directed out at other people because that, of course, is safest for ego. It doesn't want to do it to itself, although it can at times. But basically, anybody that starts threatening ego's point of spiritual centration can now come under attack. And so those fears really, really s- hold in relationship to our livelihood. If I keep going on this path, am I going to lose my job? Am I just going to give everything up? Am I going to lose my health? Am I going to lose my reputation? Am I going to lose my mind? Am I going to lose my life as I know it? I like my life, or I hate my life, but am I going to lose it as I know it? Because that's unfamiliar, and this unfamiliarity is the deep threat, because that unfamiliarity actually is also spirit. So this is stopping spiritual practice usually occurs at this point. The minute people get into this space of it doesn't feel so good, that's usually when the brakes get put on and people say, "Ooh, gosh, yeah, Wednesday night uh, meditation class. Actually, I, I have to go floss my cat that night. Yeah, I do that. Uh, you know, I don't know where that came from, uh, but just the idea that you know you cannot cannot engage in this examination." The more light that's shown on ego in this capacity, the less its darkness can reign. Well, what happens is, after a while, uh, we cross this desert. We're able to cross it. And this is why a group and a teacher and a teaching become so important, because people do it together. And in that with, in that intimacy, there is the strength to go on, the courage. We start to glean from each other. Miraculously, because each other merely is ourselves. And we start to see, goodness gracious, that person actually is a manifestation of me. Same thing we go from a circumstantial relationship uh, where everything is about an egoic negotiation into something deeper, the third stage, which is renunciation. And there's all this great baggage associated with renunciation. You know, renunciation, like, I give up everything. I don't need anything. I don't need need food, sex, you know. Certainly no uh, uh, Zinfandel, you know. No fine Cuban cigars. I, don't need I am going to be cut off from the neck down. I'm going to be a holy person. This actually really lends itself beautifully to more attachment. So what I would argue here is renunciation, in the way that I'm speaking, has everything to do with intimacy with all things that arise in awareness. Meaning that the renunciation is a surrendering or letting go of the old way, and the old way always is about, I'm in here and they're out there, they are out, they are threatening me. That situation is going to get me. It's going to disrupt my uh, my concept of livelihood, my concept of, of of what it means to to be healthy, my concept of what it means to uh, uh, live a good life. My co- Let that go. Let all the stories go in this third stage. And what we have is this grand settling. And in this settling comes fearlessness. And it's a fearlessness that knows no boundary. There is no worry at this point. Our mind is literally like the night sky. It's that big. And we say yes to whatever arises and then act from that place of renunciation. We act from that place of surrender. That's the work of a bodhisattva. That is the work of enlightened beings. So we can break this down just a little bit further. If we look at stage one, stage two, and stage three, with stage one being recognition, stage two being resistance, stage three being renunciation, we can also see those in really simplistic terms. Stage one, recognition, is about ground. It's about the body. It's about the world of form. We call it the gross level of consciousness. It's like our awakened state, our real world state. We have a fancy name for this in Buddhism, called Nirmana. Excuse me. Yes, Nirmanakaya. Nirmanakaya. Stage two: the resistance. Resistance usually comes from some type of mental clinging. We can look instead of it being in, on the ground, it's in the clouds. It's mind-attributed, rather than body-attributed. Rather than being in the world of form, it is almost like dreaming. We can call this the subtle state. Or in Buddhism, we call it the sambhogakaya. And then in the third state, renunciation, we can look at this as, instead of the ground or clouds, we can look at this as space itself. Call this the causal, meaning that stuff arises out of this great divine femininity. It is birthed from this causal, formless place. And we have a fancy name for this. It's called Dharmakaya. And if we can look in our world. If we can look at our stages of practice, and we can see them as a map, and we refuse to confuse the map with the territory itself, we refuse to confuse the street with the street sign, or the finger with what it's pointing at, if we can allow this stuff to just unfold in our hearts and minds, there's a very natural expansion of spirit. So as much as anything, meditation being a means and an end shows up very, very naturally as being an expression of everything all at once. If we sit and we allow For us to truly be still, what happens is the causal formlessness that pretty much is present in each of its junior states, renunciation, the now, present moment, spirit, all of that being right here, right now, witnessing everything as it arises, if we can just kind of relax into that, there is no pain, there is no worry. There are merely situations that we respond to with a full mind and a full heart for all beings.
0: In my day-to-day life, I try to use kind speech. I try to make a conscious effort that whenever someone says something to me, I think about it and try to react uh, from a place of peace and calmness. And obviously, that does always happen. And I can, sometimes I'm saying things and I can't believe I'm saying them. Um, And, I guess, you know, when that happens it's over, it's happened. I can't really go back in time and change anything. But I guess I'm wondering how I can work with that situation of like when I give a what I feel is an improper response, but it's just coming out, you know, without any control. Like how so how can I work with that after
1: it happens? What do you think the best thing to do Let me rephrase that. What do you appreciate in someone that hits you inappropriately after the fact? Somebody says something to you that just stings. It just stings. That's happened, right? Is there anything that can help ameliorate that sting? After it happens.
0: Oh, I, I mean, I guess you can apologize, but then I also feel like sometimes if you just apologize right after you do something, it's just kind of like. Um, I guess I'm thinking more like internally for myself. First thing,
1: yeah, yeah. First thing is breathe. Yeah. As silly as that sounds. When when the fire's hot. And it, and it starts, th- it's like somebody took the, uh, took the stove, you know, and just turned up the gas, and then next thing you know, you're, you're spitting that fire. W- see if you can watch the gas get turned up. And you can do that usually if you watch, if you feel your breath. There's a split second where witness can actually show up to the event. If witness shows up to the event and recognizes, wow there's some heat, there's some fire, usually what that does is it withdraws energy from the physicalized manifestation of that heat. So just in a real simple practice sense, I I would recommend the breath. And then also, you're probably going to hate me for saying this, but just practice with your full heart and mind, especially when it gets hot. If you know you're going to be in a situation where it's probably going to get hot, where you're hanging out with people, where you know it's most likely going to happen, it can sometimes help to meditate a little before you go into that room or into that scenario. When you're driving to somebody's house that you know, you know you're vulnerable, because those reactions happen when we feel slighted, usually or we feel like we can gain something by stabbing. The quick reminder can sometimes really be helpful. And you know what? If you screw up, be good to yourself and be good to that other person as you are good to yourself. An authentic apology is healing, not only for you, but for that other person if it comes straight from your heart. If it's coming from your mind, it's just a negotiation, and you diminish them and your own response. And don't hit. (laughs) No hitting.
2: To the comment you just made, it occurred to me that perhaps, and I really recognize not wanting to apologize and appear insincere, is perhaps one can say, Let me try that again. And in that, to me, it's the action is speaking versus the words, because you've acknowledged to the person you've communicated in a way that you prefer not to, and you're trying to do it over. Not that you can rerun the tape, but you can change the dynamics. So I think that's at a superficial level, perhaps. Not what you were talking about, but just an observation. What was I talking about? Well, I think what I heard was more dealing with the spirit. Yeah.
1: Because that person is not real. They're a total construct of your mind. And ego, at that the minute I say th- those words, the minute I just said that, I'm guessing that everybody in this room kind of went, <laughs> uh-uh. You just felt ego. That's ego. Resistance, right? That is the felt sense that our bodies have when the infinite brushes up against and scrapes what we perceive to be our boundary.
2: Michael, I need a remedial class. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you've got it you've got it right here okay the minute you perceive that i am outside of you that brad is outside of you what you are doing is giving into our separate sense of self there's all this biological material we have that propagates that belief but it's not the whole story it's not that it's false it's that it's not the whole story